The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as our sermon text, from, comes from Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water, and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you may know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three days journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time, when Pharaoh hardened his heart, or, uh, but this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels, and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belongs to the, belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and fustering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them 
and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Thus ends reading of God's holy word. Let us go now to our God in prayer once more. Our Father, we come before you and we thank you for the words of life that you have given to us. We ask that you would speak to your people this day that you would soften hard hearts and open blind eyes, indeed that we might be renewed again by your word, by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would bless the speaker as well as the hearer. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the uh, distinct pleasure or joy of being the last one picked in a game of dodgeball or not, Uh, but I'm sure that you all can at least on some level relate to the experience of choosing teams. You know, uh, a group of local kids get together and they want to play a sport or game of some kind, and so they choose two captains, and it's usually uh, the biggest and the strongest kids who are the captains. And then this sort of procedure goes on uh, where all the other kids are picked for their team based on how valuable a player they are will be to contributing to the game and winning the game. So the big kids, the strong kids, the fast kids, they all move to the front of the line in the choosing, while the slow and the, uh, uh, shall we say, less agile or the undesirable are moved and chosen at the end, and in some cases, if they're chosen at all. I mean, this place at the end of the line, it is usually reserved for the dorks, the nerds, and in some cases, you know, uh, those who look like they haven't seen the sun all year because they've been locked in their room playing video games. uh, You know, this place is not reserved for the great ones, I vividly remember uh, back in my middle school years uh, when I had a weight problem, uh, my family moved to a new congregation whose youth group uh, met every single Wednesday night, and that youth group had a ritual of playing dodgeball in the gym every single week. And every single week, that ritual would start out the same. The two oldest and the strongest would become captains, and they would choose their team's And I quickly learned about the pecking order through this ritual, especially, you know, that chubby new kids 
also have a place reserved for them, and it's at the end of the line with the dorks and the nerds and the unwanted and the undesirables. And when you are put in that position repeatedly, you can't help but wonder, why am I not chosen and they are? What do they have that I don't? I think we can all relate to that sinking feeling of being unwanted or undesired. Maybe it was that group of girls in high school who just wouldn't let you become their friend. Maybe it was the difficult time you had of making friends, but at some level we've all experienced what it feels like to be an outsider in one context or another looking into something that we want to belong to but don't because we are a foreigner or a stranger an outsider, and all we want is to be loved and included instead of shunned and cast off, divided between the haves and have-nots. Well, as we come to our text this morning, as you look through the book of Exodus, there is a sharp distinction that is made between those who are desirable, those who are not, between the haves and the have-nots, between Israel and Egypt. Egypt is the strong. They are the beautiful people, the lovely, and the people of Israel are the have-nots. They are the ones who are unwanted, so much so that their children have been thrown into the Nile River. They are the undesirable ones, the unlovely of this earth, and Egypt treats them as such. Meanwhile, You see Egypt prospering and growing. They live the good life. And yet, when God looks on this same division, when he looks at the differences between Egypt and Israel, he does not look at them in the same way that we do. Surely God places a clear division between these two people. And that becomes repeatedly or or, or clear repeatedly throughout the plagues that we'll even see this morning. There is a separation between Israel and Egypt. God clearly sets his love upon one group and passes over the other, ordaining them to dishonor. And it does beg the question, why? Why does God choose Israel over Egypt? Why does God desire to redeem Israel from Egypt? Why did he put this division between these two people, between Israel and Egypt, wanting to liberate God's people while he would bring a heavy judgment upon the peoples of Egypt? I mean, what does Israel have to offer God that he would choose them for his own heritage? Are they the biggest? Are they the strongest? What is it? For what purposes does God choose his people and turn people of God I hope you see that it begs the question of us why would God choose you I mean what have you to offer him why would God redeem you what makes you so special that God would indeed deliver you through Christ Jesus is it because you are stronger and faster or more morally upright than all the peoples of this age. I mean, why does God divide the peoples of this earth between the sheep and the goats? Our text will answer that for us this morning as we first see God's division between the people. God's division between the people. 
Now, just as a, a reminder, as we get going here this morning, we're not going through these particular plagues we read this morning in a line-by-line fashion, but more uh, thematically. You know, uh, what themes run through all of the plagues? What phrases or ideas do we see repeated through them from the beginning again and again so that we can see clearly what it is that God is doing that he would have us see as uh, according to the whole forest and not just the individual trees within it? You'll notice in our text, uh, really, there are two pieces to the puzzle that are really emphasized about the division between the peoples. First, we see this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and we will come back to that later. But it has a significant role in understanding the division of the peoples. But you'll also notice repeatedly throughout each of the plagues, God choosing his own people. God, as he demonstrates his power over the earth, his power over creation himself, as he manifests his might and glory in the plagues that fall upon the earth, he ensures that not all of the people in this land will receive the same treatment. God does not act the same way with Egypt as he does with Israel. Again, you see this repeated throughout the plagues. Notice in verse 22 of chapter 8, during the plague of flies, God says quite pointedly, I'm going to put a division here between you. I'm going to put a separation, a wall, if you will, between my people and your people, Pharaoh. I will set aside the whole land of Goshen where Israel dwells so that no swarms of flies will be in the land. And by this division, you will know that I am the Lord. And God puts a hedge around Israel, and they do not receive the same judgment of God upon them, though they live in the land of Egypt. And this same thing repeats itself. Again, you come to the fifth plague, where the livestock of Egypt will die. And in verse 4, God says again, very specifically, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing at all that even belongs to the people of God will die. The next day, the Lord did this thing, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but not one of the livestock that belonged to Israel. Pharaoh sends out an official into the land, or he goes out himself, possibly, to survey the damage done, to witness for himself if this is true. And he sees with his own eyes this divide, this distinction between the land of Goshen and the people of that land and the people of his nation and the surrounding peoples. It's like God is saying, Pharaoh, this divide between your people and my people, it is so sharp and so severe that even Israel's possessions and their wealth will not be harmed in the way that yours will be. They will endure in a way that you cannot. Now, I I mean, you and I, we hear the loss of some cattle, and it seems like a shame, but it matters here that old Bessie has fallen dead. This is the very wealth of Pharaoh. This is the measure of one's might, and his power is his livestock. You know, today, wealth is measured with the dollar, but then in this day, it was measured by how much or how great your flocks and your herds were, how much livestock you owned. That's why Abraham was considered a wealthy and great man, because he had 
multiple livestock that belong to him. And that's why it's very interesting that when Abraham leaves Egypt, he basically plunders Pharaoh, taking with him all the gifts that Pharaoh had given of uh, uh, oxen and sheep and donkeys and camels. He is made great by this land of Egypt, even as Israel will be later on. Pharaoh is going to go out to the fields and he is watching literally all the wealth of Egypt being flushed down the toilet. While Israel, this people of want, suddenly have all the wealth of the land. They have been raised up. They are prospering. Over and over again, God drives a wedge between these two peoples. There is this emphasis on division and distinction between God's people and the rest of the world. Between his holy set-apart people and the land of Egypt. Now, it's not mentioned explicitly in in the sixth plague when the boils, but it does say that the boils are on all of the Egyptians. And that's a way of letting us know this uh, division is present, especially as you come and see that Moses, an Israelite, stands before Pharaoh, and yet the magicians, those whose role it is to defend Egypt against this magic, can't even defend themselves, and they are unable to rise from their own beds because of the pain that these boils have been brought upon them. And when you hear of boils, these these things, you should really be thinking of something like a festering wound, you know, an open sore all over the body. I mean, this is this is brutal stuff that is happening to Pharaoh's own house, to Pharaoh's own people. His economic stability is being challenged. His wealth is being stripped of him. And the health of the land is being taken away all so that God would make known in all of Egypt that he alone is God who should receive glory and honor that is due his name. And yet the people of Israel hold None of this. They have none of these same problems. And twice more, we'll read about this division between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, although you can uh, uh, safely assume that it's there in all the rest of the plagues. And the hailstorm, no hail falls upon Goshen, and all the rest of the land is struck by it. And as you come to the plague of darkness, the people of Egypt will be blinded by the darkness so much so that it will swallow them whole. The imagery is that you can taste the darkness. You can't see your hand touching your nose and your face. It's a palpable darkness. It can be felt. And while those who walk with the Lord and remain, uh, those who walk with the Lord, the people of Israel, they remain in the light unhindered in their regular business. And finally, it all will come to its head when the biggest distinction of all is made. And the blood of the lamb covers over God's people while all the rest, their firstborns, will die. Death will visit the land of Egypt while the people of Israel are spared. You see, the people of God, as we come to these plagues, it's very interesting, but there has been a reversal since we first entered into this book. The mighty have been made weak And the oppressed are now free to prosper. 
The people of God are free from the oppression placed on them by Egypt. God's people have been spared so much. They have been delivered from evil. And it makes you wonder, is that the point of the plagues? Is that what God is doing? Is the point of this division and distinction between the people that God would spare them, that he would save this people? And we see all this happening, but we have to ask, what is God's goal here? Why is God doing all this? Why is there this emphasis in the text repeated about a division, this gulf between the peoples that cannot be crossed? Is it that Israel is being redeemed? Is it about emphasizing how great the grace of God is towards the people of God? Is that the focus of all these many chapters dedicating to fleshing out these ten plagues? Well, that's part of it. But it cannot ultimately just be about what God is working for the people of God. Because this division emphasizes two sides. It is a great canyon, a gulf, and on each side of the canyon are two walls. There are two sides to this coin. And on the one hand, we see God sparing Israel. But in these same exact acts, we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. People of God, I hope you've noticed so far that throughout all of the plagues, and even before these plagues, all the way back to the burning bush, a certain phrase is repeating itself again and again. And that is of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And it's told to us in different ways how his heart is hardened. It's repeated, though, numerous times, again and again. Only sometimes it is Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Sometimes it is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. God moving in Pharaoh in such a way that he would reject the signs and wonders of Moses. In fact, this phrase, this wording about hardening of heart, is repeated more than any other phrase between verses or chapters 4 through 10. Three times God explicitly says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will reject the signs that you bring. Six times we see God actually doing it, actually hardening his heart. Three times the text tells us that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And 19 times total we hear how God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, or we see it actually uh, result in his hardening. And this is something that many in our day and in our world are uncomfortable with this idea that it's within God's prerogative to harden whom he will harden and to soften whom he will soften, even as Paul tells us in Romans 9. And often we don't like this language because it seems like perhaps God isn't being fair because he is choosing some and not others. He's become a captain of the team, dividing out both sides of the team. And the real question here is why does God's God harden Pharaoh's heart through these plagues and at the same time bring deliverance to Israel? I mean, why does God choose some as his own people and not others? Why does he put a distinction between the church and the rest of the world? Is it because God looked down through the corridors of time and he knew that if he saved you or if he saved Israel that he was making the right choice and that you would indeed turn out to be a great person because of it or the strongest or the best because of it? I don't know how many Christians you've known in your life, but I've met some who aren't all that great. I've known some angry people. 
some who are pushy, some who are unwilling to commit. I mean, the church of Christ Jesus is filled with people who have all kinds of sin problems. Israel, God's people, the church, falls incredibly short of even where he would have us. If anything, we are the fat kids who are trying to play dodgeball. We are stuck down at the bottom. If you look at Israel, as soon as they are redeemed, immediately they begin hardening their own hearts and turning from the very God who has saved them. How many of us can say, once we were delivered, that we have actually begun to walk according to the calling by which we have been called in all things, in the humbleness that Paul has called us to, in patience, in bearing with one another in love, imitators of God, giving of ourselves to Christ as Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. God didn't choose his people He didn't even elect his people because he knew that we would believe or because we would turn out okay. God tells Israel, hey, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of the nations. In fact, you were the least of the nations. I didn't choose you because you were strong, but because you are weak. God doesn't elect us because he thought of us above all, that you were the most important person in the world to him. No, God, people of God, God tells us in Romans 9, the text that we read this morning, why God puts a distinction between the people of this world and those who belong to the world to come. He says of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in verse 17, quoting from our text this morning, Exodus 9, verse 16, for this reason, and this reason alone, I raised up Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and so that my name might receive glory, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, what Paul is showing us, what God is reminding us is that everything that God is doing and how he works in this world, in his electing some and passing over others and ordaining them to dishonor, in his dividing the sheep from the goats, the people of God from the world, Israel from Egypt, he is doing this so that his name would be magnified above every other name that is upon this earth, so that his greatness and his power and his might and glory is known throughout all his creation, and that his name would be above every name. And that the name of Christ Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he alone is Lord. You see, people have got our redemption. That redemption purchased for you on the cross of Calvary, a costly and precious gift that has been given for us, a gift of God that frees us to be uh, to live in the sacrifice and salvation of our God. Even as Israel is... Uh, um, will do in the wilderness and beyond being defined by sacrifice, these things that have been given for us, God's gift of redemption, this precious gift for you and I who are in Christ Jesus has been given so that we might enter into his land and worship God in peace and prosperity. For those will be part of the kingdom that comes. Isaiah 11 reminds us that peace will reign in his kingdom for the child will play over the whole of the adder. And there won't be death there, but there will be peace. And that land will be so prosperous, a land flowing with milk and honey, that even Micah 4 says that as they beat the swords into plowshares, 
Each man will rest under his own vineyard and the prosperity of the land will surround the people of God. God does all of this, his redeeming of a people and committing others to wrath and judgment for the glory of his holy name alone. Romans 9 tells us God endured with much much patience the vessels of wrath so that the riches of his mercy and glories of his grace might be magnified all the more. God's name will be magnified all the more on both sides of the great divide. God is a jealous God and he is jealous to receive all the glory and honor that is due to his name and his name alone and he will have it from the people of this earth. One way or another, he will have it. The people of God, those who have been set, he has set his name upon those whom he allows to walk through the waters of judgment, those whom he has called out of darkness into the glorious light as those who he holds in the palm of his hand. It is our privilege to rejoice in the work of his hand, to thank God for all that he has done in Christ Jesus, to praise him with every breath that we take for what he has done for us with the whole of our lives because the God who has set you apart for his mercy must be praised. It is not optional. We are to praise him when times are good, when times are bad, when we are flourishing and when the budget isn't being met, when your favorite football team is losing, when the crops all die, when the livestock is lost. We are to praise him for his mercy to this unworthy, unlovely, and certainly broken people because his name, the name that redeems a people for his own glory, deserves all of it. People of God, we praise his name for what he has worked in us, and yet we also praise him for the judgment that he's bringing upon the nations. He is working in all the peoples of this earth, one way or the other. And may we be called, even as the scriptures call us to magnify his name, may this praising of our God for what he has done for us orient our entire life for surely it is what will guide everything we do and everything we are in this life to come. God did not redeem you because he thought you were the greatest or the best. But he redeemed you to praise and magnify his name above every other name. And people of God, may we do so even this day. For in his working, this great and magnificent work in his dividing a people's out. In setting aside the church to glorify him, to worship him, and enduring with much patience these vessels of wrath, he has also made vessels of mercy. We praise him for the glorious grace that he has done. May we praise and magnify our God, that he would receive all the glory that is due his name this day and forevermore. For he alone is God, this entire earth, every boundary that he has set, everything that he has placed within it, everything that he has done in this world, it belongs to him to do with as he pleases. And you, 
have been given the great privilege of being drawn to him, being called a vessel of mercy. Indeed, that he would make his name known through you all the more. People of God, may we magnify his name as those who have been given so much through Christ Jesus. May indeed that glory control our worship and adoration of him this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you did not choose us because we are strong or mighty, for we are not. Father, we, we are the lowest of the low. We are those who do not deserve your mercy and great, and yet, and yet you have set it upon us anyway. We thank you for it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to make your name magnified and glorified, that you would receive all the honor that is due unto your name, that you would use us to accomplish those purposes. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that is ours that you could have so easily withheld from us. And yet you great gave it to us, making your gracious and glorious name known in all the earth. Father, we pray that you would help us indeed to proclaim this name that is above every name to all the ends of the earth. For you will have your glory. We pray that you would allow us to participate in making the glory of your name known. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.